0: In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realise that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon, so that a decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God for ever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O King, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O King, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O King, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything and as iron breaks things to pieces so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay." In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour, and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. And placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Thanks, Carl.
1: Let's pray together. Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, you would open our minds to understand uh, the dream that you gave to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, as you gave him Daniel to understand and to interpret things. Lord, we pray that you would help us through your Holy Spirit to understand uh, these things, uh, what you are doing in your world. Uh, Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, it was great yesterday morning uh, to, to help out around the block. Uh, to go around and to uh, clean up some yards. It was, uh, it was just great to be back on the tools again. Uh, I've, I've waited for about three years to say that. Uh, just trying to weave that in. It was great to be back on the tools. I don't know if gardening gloves and a trowel count as being on the tools. But, uh, but it was great to be on them nevertheless Anyway. Uh, and while I was out there yesterday morning, a lady, uh, one of the ladies that we were helping uh, came up and she said to me, who's in charge? Uh, who's your crew boss around here? And I said, well, certainly not, certainly not me. I don't have the foggiest what's going on. Uh, and eventually we sorted it out. But that question is an all too common question, is it? Uh, who's in charge? Who's in control? Uh, or perhaps we might sometimes say, who's really in charge? When you put really in there, it changes the sense uh, of what we mean, doesn't it? It's a surprisingly common question, I think. And some of the answers that we give, that people give in society, uh, they're often conspiratorial answers, aren't they? So who's who's in charge? Big business is in charge. That's who's in charge. The faceless men. The pharmaceutical companies. Organised Crime. The CIA. Who's in charge of our world? As we look at our world and as we look at the wars in Syria and Iraq and Ukraine, as we look at the Ebola outbreak in Africa, it's easy for us to wonder, I think, to ask that question, who's in control? Well, as Daniel and his friends sat in Babylon, they must have wondered who was in charge. They'd been dragged off by Nebuchadnezzar from their homeland, and they were captives. But in the events of this chapter, God gives them, and he gives to us as well, eyes to see reality as it really is. He peels back the curtain, if you like, to show us what's really going on and to see who is in control. Well, the events begin with Nebuchadnezzar having these dreams which trouble him, and they keep him from sleeping. In a culture like the Babylonian culture that was heavily entrenched in astrology and the interpretation of dreams, you can understand why Nebuchadnezzar would be troubled And so he calls in his magicians, his enchanters, his sorcerers, his astrologers. He calls in anyone that he can think of who might be able to help him. And he asks them not only to tell him what his dream means, but he asks them to tell him what his dream was. The astrologers and the magicians act a little bit like uh, Humphrey from Yes Minister. I don't know how many people uh, watch uh, watch Yes Minister or have seen it. But you can just imagine, can't you, Humphrey answering the question, yes, of course, minister, I'll interpret the dream. Now, if you just tell me what the dream is, he pretends he doesn't hear the the question. But the king is smart enough to know that if he tells these people what the dream is, he has no way of knowing whether their interpretation is true or not. So in order to be sure that what they're telling him is the truth, he asks them to tell him the dream as well. Well, unsurprisingly, perhaps the astrologers can't do it. Uh, In fact, there's not much in this passage that the astrologers can do, but they do get one thing right, I think, in verse 11 when they say, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. No one can do it. No human being can do it. It's too hard. But what the astrologers can't do, the God of heaven does through Daniel. Threatened with death, Daniel says he can interpret the dream, which is astonishing. Arioch, the king's commander, comes and says, you're all going to be put to death. And Daniel says, no, it's all right. I can interpret the dream, which we discover only after Arioch has left, that he didn't know that he could do. He says to his friends, quick, we've got to pray pray that God might actually enable me to do this. Astonishing faith, isn't it? And remember that Daniel is probably only 14 or 15 years old. He turns to his friends and asks them to pray that God would be merciful. And in the end, God is. But notice God is merciful not for Daniel's sake, but for Nebuchadnezzar's sake. When Daniel finally goes to interpret the the dream to the king, Daniel says... No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dreams and the visions that pass through your minds as you learn your bed are these. As you are lying there, O oh king, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, says Daniel... This mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You see, God has a message for the king. God wants the king to know something, to understand something. God wants the king to know that this message is true and authentic. God wants the king to know that Daniel's God is really God. God wants the king to know that Daniel's God is the revealer of mysteries. That Daniel's God knows the future, not because he can see the future, but because he is in charge of the future. It seems a torturous process to go through, doesn't it? I mean, he could have just sent Daniel in the first place. Just, King, look, I've got a message for you. It's from God. But he goes through this, this whole rigmarole. Which must mean that the mystery that God has for Nebuchadnezzar is a very important mystery, a very important message. A message not only for the king, I think, but a message for Daniel. And through Daniel, a message for all God's people. And through the Bible, a message not only for God's people in Daniel's day, but a message for us as well. So, what is the mystery? What is the mystery that was so important for Nebuchadnezzar to know that God constructed this whole process to make it known to him? Well, I think there are three parts to the mystery uh, that God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. The first thing that God shows Nebuchadnezzar is that God is the one who sets up kingdoms. God is the one who sets up kingdoms, so Daniel finally goes into the king to explain the dream and in this dream Nebuchadnezzar sees this large statue of a human figure, the statue of a man. It has a head of gold, it has a chest and arms of silver. Its belly and its thighs were made from bronze and its legs of iron and its feet of iron and clay mixed together. It was, we're told, an awesome and a dazzling statue and it represents the kingdoms of the ancient world, the four different body parts, uh, the four different uh, materials symbolising different kingdoms. The head, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, is Nebuchadnezzar himself. In verse 37 he says, You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, He has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. It's spectacular language, isn't it? Imagine the people of God living in Babylon, hearing God talking about Nebuchadnezzar like that. You're the king of kings. He's given you power and might and glory. Nebuchadnezzar's place and power and authority, God says, are not accidents, God hasn't just kind of begrudgingly handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, well, he's, he's there. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll let him keep that. God has given them to him. God has given him might and power and even glory, even stature. God has put everything in his hands, people and animals and birds, all of creation. One of the downfalls, I think, uh, of democracy, or perhaps better to say, one of the downfalls of the ways that we think about democracy is that we so easily believe that it's we who make kings and we who depose them. We vote people in, we vote people out. But God's message to Nebuchadnezzar and God's message to us, I think, is God might use our voting, but whatever other powers are at work, God stands behind them. God put them there. God has given those governments authority over us, even if we don't like our governments, and even if we don't like what our governments do. See, one of the dangers, I think, of the book of Daniel is that we come away having read the stories about Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the furnace. We come away from reading those stories and we think that the message of Daniel is that that we shouldn't compromise our faith when the rulers uh, impose their will on us. And that is an important message from the book of Daniel. But the other equally important message from the book of Daniel is that God has put the governments there in that place to rule over us. And that we serve and honour God by serving those governments and those powers that he has placed in authority over us. When the Pharisees came to Jesus, they asked him about the Roman taxation system. They didn't like paying the taxes to Rome and so they kind of wanted Jesus to uh, well, get himself into trouble for one thing but also to rubber stamp their their, uh, reluctance to pay. But Jesus didn't give them the answer that they wanted. Jesus says to them, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. You don't get to choose one and not the other, God and not the kingdoms of men. You have to choose both. Paul in Romans 13 makes this sweeping statement. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except which that, has, that which has been established by God. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. If the government puts in place laws that we don't like, laws that we find frustrating and burdensome, it's putting those in place because God has given them the authority to do that. If the government puts in place oh legislation that we don't like, which it does, I think, we still have to obey it. If they tax us at exorbitant rates, we still need to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If the government decides tomorrow that the, marginal, the lowest marginal tax rate will be 70%, it's, we have to obey. We live in a democracy where we, can, where we can argue against and say, that's a bad idea. If the government decides that we have to wear pink and purple polka dots every day of the week, then we should do it. We might think it's stupid... And it would be, unless you have a penchant for uh, uh, pink and purple polka dots, of course. But at one level, what we think of the ideas is irrelevant. Governments aren't there by accident. God has established them. God has established them for us to listen to. People would resent the rule, but there couldn't be any objection to it on the basis of religious liberty. One writer on the book of Daniel says, we do better at civil disobedience than we do at civil obedience. We turn every issue into an issue of religious liberty. But more often than not, our objections to laws of our land have more to do with the fact that as sinful people, we don't like to be told what to do. And the risk is, I think, as Christians, that if we don't do our utmost to obey the insignificant but annoying things that our governments ask us to do, then when we really have to stand against things that impose on our civil liberty, our religious liberties, we won't have any credibility left. God says to Nebuchadnezzar, and God says to Daniel, and God says to us, that the kingdoms of the world have been set up by God and God has given them their authority over us. But after the head of gold in the dream, there are three more kingdoms to come as well. A second kingdom inferior to Babylon, a third kingdom, one of bronze... And a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, which breaks everything to pieces, but which is also tragically flawed, being mixed with brittle clay. Just as God gave the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar, so God will bring uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom to an end. And he'll replace Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom with another kingdom. And God will replace that kingdom with another kingdom after that. And finally, God will bring all those four kingdoms to an end and establish his own kingdom. If the first thing that uh, God shows Nebuchadnezzar is that God raises up kingdoms, the second thing that God shows Nebuchadnezzar is that God also brings kingdoms to an end. That thought was encapsulated in Daniel's prayer in verse 21. Daniel says, he changes times and seasons, he sets up kings and deposes them. That's worth reflecting on, I think, with some seriousness. Frequently uh, in the last year, people have written about the growing fragility of Western democracies. I don't know if you've read any of those articles. A little over a week ago, uh, Mungo McCallum wrote in an article on ABC Online that the extent of dissatisfaction and distrust in the government is both alarming and depressing. A recent study... Showed that 52.5% of the population have uh, only 52.5% of the population have any faith in the government, and a whopping 46.5% think that the government is untrustworthy to one degree or another. Almost 30% of people said that democracy itself is unworkable. Earlier in the year, The Economist had a special report into what has gone wrong with democracy at a global level. They concluded the biggest challenge to democracy, however, comes neither from above nor below, but from within, from the voters themselves. Democratic governments got into the habit of running big structural deficits as a matter of course borrowing to give voters what they wanted in the short term while neglecting long-term investment. In other words, what they're saying is our selfishness drove governments to give us what they couldn't afford to give. To add to the problem, they go on, there's growing cynicism toward politics. In a survey of seven European countries, more than half of voters, more than half, had no trust in the government. Membership of of political parties has plummeted over the last 60 years. Uh, Around 1% of people in in, uh, European countries, I think, are in political parties. Voter turnout is falling all over the world. And the rise of people voting for nonsense parties is growing as well. So in Iceland, a party promising to be openly corrupt, promising their platform was to be openly corrupt, they won enough votes to co-run the city council. In Italy, a party founded by a comedian won a quarter of the votes. Society itself is also deeply fractured and is evidenced as is evidenced by the rising number of special interest groups. And the thing is that democracy can only really work when there's a kind of some degree of harmony between people and a population... Democracy is stumbling, it would seem, based on all the analysis that's going on. And I think it's worth remembering that the the empires in Nebuchadnezzar's day weren't flashes in the pan. They weren't backwater empires. It wasn't, I don't know, Papua New Guinea or something like that. Some of these kingdoms were the great kingdoms of the ancient world. Babylon reigned for nearly 100 years. One of the mighty empires of the ancient world. The Medo-Persian Empire reigned for 200 years. The Greek Empire for nearly 300 and conquered most of the known world. The Roman Empire ruled for 500 years. The present Australian nation has been around for a little over 100 years since federation. As a political institution, and we flatter ourselves, I suspect, that if we've been around for a hundred years, that will go on forever. But we'd be poor students of history, I think, to believe that. It's worth remembering that even empires that stood for five hundred years eventually fell. And when they fell, as Rome did, they fell badly. Will democracies all over the world collapse? Who knows, honestly. They might, It's a very real possibility. They may not too. They may go on for another 300 years. But if they do fall, it will be God who brings them down and it will be God who raises up another nation in their place. And whatever happens, we don't need to be afraid because God is in control. God looked after his people under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He looked after his people under the reign of the Medes and the Persians. He looked after his people under the reign of the Greeks and the Romans. And he can still look after us today as well. God has history in his hands. He raises up kingdoms And he brings them down. Well, the final point of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that God is not only setting up and bringing down other kingdoms, God is raising up his own kingdom. In verse 34, we read about the end of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel says, While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces. At the same time, and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Here are these four glorious empires of the ancient world. And a little stone cut out of a mountain breaks them to smithereens. Daniel interprets the vision in verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to the end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces it's a stone and yet it crushes these great kingdoms it's only a stone and yet it grows to encompass the whole world it's cut from the mountain by no human hand it's the work of god That small stone that Nebuchadnezzar saw and which Daniel interpreted, we know from the New Testament is Jesus, don't we? The Son of God who came into the world as a baby and who destroyed kingdoms, not with an army, but with a cross, and who was crowned not with gold and silver and bronze but with thorns. Jesus, whose kingdom has been growing and expanding all over the world for centuries as people put their trust in him. You see, the kingdom of God can seem very small to us, can't it? It seems at times tiny, like a rock, like a pebble. But if we have the eyes to see it, we can see that God's kingdom, though it started out like that, has actually grown and is enormous and is taking over the world. It started with Jesus. Then there was 12 disciples, 3,000 converts on the day of Pentecost. It spread through the Roman Empire. It spread through Europe and Great Britain. It spread to America, to North America, to South America. It spread to Australia. It spread all over the globe. And it keeps spreading every day. It's so strange, I think, isn't it, that at the same time that Christianity is facing such enormous challenges in places like Australia, it's, it's also, at the same time, the strongest it's ever been. I can't think of a time when evangelical Christianity has been so strong in this country, when there's been so much unity, so much collegiality, so much commonness of vision, At the same time that Christianity is facing new challenges in Australia and America and Europe, at the same time the gospel is going out in profound ways in China. The gospel is going out in the Middle East. Iran topped the nations last year, I think, with the the number of converts. As IS wages a war of horrific violence seeking to establish by force an Islamic state, The kingdom of God is growing silently, spectacularly, gently, like a stone carved out of a mountain, not by any human hand, which grows to fill the earth. As every day, individual people put their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I watched a documentary yesterday one of the most haunting things I think I've ever seen. It was about a squad of US soldiers uh, nicknamed the Kill Team. They plotted and murdered innocent civilians in Afghanistan. And a man by the name of Adam Winfield, a specialist in that squad, was a young man caught up in that murder And he was a man who tried to put a stop to it. But who, in fear of his life, ultimately got caught up in that violence as well. And himself got caught up in the death of an innocent man. He was charged with first-degree murder. And he set out one day to end his life. He sat at his desk with an M4 assault rifle loaded next to him with a round in the chamber. And he sat down at his desk to write a farewell note to his parents, apologising for letting them down and for everything that he'd done. But instead of finding paper in the desk, he found a Bible. And he started to read the Bible And he started to cry. And he started to confess his sins. And he kept reading. And he kept praying. And he read how Jesus said to his disciples that they would be dragged before kings and judges. But that they shouldn't worry. But they should remain faithful and suffer for Jesus' sake. And that if they do, he will be with them. Adam Winfield prayed all morning and all night and he unloaded the weapon and he put it away. Out of the ashes of human tyranny and out of the ashes of the conflicts of human kingdoms, God's kingdom grows one person at a time as all over the world people put their faith in Jesus and trust in him. Nebuchadnezzar needed a special vision and a special interpreter to see that. We're so privileged, I think, to be able to see every day, all over the world, in real life, the kingdom of God begun as a small stone growing to take over the whole earth. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you are establishing your kingdom in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we look out at our world, We're so saddened by the misery that so many people face as nations make war against nations and people make war against people, as terrorists bomb and slaughter, as diseases break out and kill. Yet, Lord, at the same time, the gospel goes out. Forgiveness is received. And your name is glorified. Lord, we feel so powerless. And we are. But your gospel of Jesus Christ meets our weakness and is spreading throughout the whole world. Give us the eyes to see it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.